We are for the church and for the kingdom. This vision drives everything we do. There are many noble causes and institutions in this world, and we care about the future of seminaries, academies, governments, social causes, and parachurch ministries, but they are not fundamentally why we exist. We exist for the future of the church and the advancement of God's kingdom. With God's help, our students today will be the pastors, ministers, and missionaries of the global church tomorrow. We teach the Bible in the classroom so that generations of churches will be sturdy outposts of Christ's kingdom. This is how we serve the church, and this is how we bless every other good and noble endeavor until God's glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Will you join us? Well, good morning. I would like to um, just thank those friends and family in Britain, especially, who are uh, joining by live stream, and uh, also to uh, members from the church where I serve who've come um, to support me this morning as well here um, at the seminary. I would also like to say by following on from Dr. Aubrey yesterday that uh, I too am sharing on the life of this God-focused individual, William Wilberforce, this morning, though I'll do it a little differently. Born in Hull, England, a little over five foot tall, an evangelical and an incredible orator. It's hard to know whether I'm reading my resume or introducing William Wilberforce. Sadly, I only share the first three traits with him. I wish I shared the fourth. A little while ago, Dr. Dusing gave the first lecture in that new series here, you know, Great Lives from Christian History, Great Lives of the Christian Faith, and he gave a wonderful challenge from what he referred to as the plodding life and ministry of the British Baptist missionary, William Carey. My privilege this morning is to bring a similar challenge, but this time from the life and achievements of the British evangelical abolitionist, William Wilberforce. Wilbur, to everyone who knew him. And before I begin that proper, I would like to briefly share that there's much more significant connection between William Carey and William Wilberforce than merely their both being English, and I suppose the minor detail of them both sharing the same first name. And it relates to the fact that besides Wilberforce's incredible achievement in working with others to bring about the abolition of slavery, he had so many other areas of major impact on society one of which was in the sphere of foreign missions. He not only used his significant parliamentary influence to help bring about a legal basis for Brits to do foreign mission, but he became a great friend, an encourager, and a supporter of several early missions and missionaries, including both William Carey and Andrew Fuller. Then, as Carey and his fellow missionary, Dr. Thomas, were preparing to head out for India, Wilberforce personally advised them 
not to take a British ship because that would have resulted in them traveling in a vessel that basically belonged to the East India Company. And if the missionaries had done that, then the company would have known much quicker than they actually did of the missionaries' somewhat illegal journey and arrival in India. William Wilberforce was the only son of four children. He was born into a wealthy family in Hull, Yorkshire, in 1759. He lost his father at the age of nine, and his mother quickly becomes seriously ill as well. And so Wilbur is shipped off 200 miles away south to London. He's going to stay with his evangelical aunt and uncle, another William Wilberforce and Hannah, his wife. They were good friends with John Newton, George Whitfield, and the Wesleys. By inheriting family fortunes, Wilberforce becomes independently wealthy. He goes to Cambridge University, though he admits he wasn't a serious student. My tutor never urged me to attend lectures, and so I never did. Unlike that professor, I always urge my students to come to my lectures. Wilberforce becomes close friends with William Pitt the Younger, and both men enter politics as young men. Wilbur was incredibly gifted as a singer, an orator, and a debater. Though throughout his life, he's never physically strong. He is the five foot or so that I mentioned at the beginning. He weighs about 90, 95 pounds. He's not the dashing six foot of the actor Ian Grifford, who plays Wilberforce in the movie Amazing Grace. Wilberforce will also suffer from several disabilities, and later, due to his campaigns, he'll face constant and dangerous opposition. As a wealthy young man of just 25, he invites the brilliant Isaac Milner, who is the Lucasian Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge, the same position that has been held by Sir Isaac Newton and will be by Stephen Hawking. And he invites him to accompany him on a grand tour of Europe. Now, Wilberforce knew that Milner was an incredible intellectual giant. What he didn't know was that Milner was also an evangelical. And Wilberforce later wrote that he never would have invited Milner if he'd known that to be the case. On the tour, Milner introduces Wilberforce to three things. The writings of the godly Philip Doddridge, the Greek New Testament, and to Christ as a savior. And as a consequence, both Wilberforce and the world would be forever radically changed for the better. Wilbur becomes an active evangelical. He's mentored by the likes of John Newton, and John and Charles Wesley. He comes to love scripture. He memorizes much of it by heart and in Greek. He especially loved the Psalms. It's the most quoted Bible book in his journals. And he memorized and prayed them often. I walked from Hyde Park Corner, repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. 
I suppose if you're going to memorize a psalm, why not go for the longest with the 176 verses? The new center of Wilbur's life became composed of an intimate prayer life, a love for God's word, genuine humility, and a spirit of real repentance. Whilst the pursuit of his God-given two great objects, abolition and the reformation of manners, basically impacting society with the gospel, those become the focus of his new life's mission. When his eyesight suffered so badly at times that he was unable to see, he employed readers who would read to him scripture, the Puritans and Jonathan Edwards. They were his 18th and 19th century podcasts, I suppose. He would consistently be worshiping at church. He had regular family times of worship at home. All the servants would come to it, any guests who were with him too. He also spearheaded the parliamentary campaign for abolition. He impacted society in an incredible way with the gospel. Year after year, he presented bills in parliament to abolish slavery. And year after year, he had to cope with the crushing defeat that resulted. This is what he said in his initial abolition speech in Parliament when he was just 30. When I consider the magnitude of the subject, and when I think at the same time on the weakness of the advocate who has undertaken this great cause, when these reflections press upon my mind, it is impossible for me not to feel both terrified and concerned at my own inadequacy to such a task. As soon as ever I had arrived this far in my investigation, I confess so enormous, so dreadful did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would, I from this time determined that I would never rest till I had effected its abolition. After investing his health, his strength, his fortune, and basically his life to achieving such a seemingly impossible goal, he saw the slave trade abolished at age 47, slavery itself at age 73, dying just three days after it was achieved. Within hours of his death, more than a hundred powerful figures in Britain wrote to his family asking if they would accept the highest honor that Britain can afford someone, that of allowing him to be buried in Westminster Abbey. And there he lies today, close to his best friend, William Pitt the Younger. Within a year of his death, the city of Hull erected a huge column with a statue of Wilberforce on the top. It was a mark of incredible respect to its greatest son. It still stands there today. Now, hopefully, that very brief biographical introduction will at least help some who may not be overly familiar with Wilbur's life and achievements. One thing that we should be eternally grateful for is that after his conversion, 
as Wilberforce was seeking God's will for his life, whether he now should become a preacher himself, which he initially believed may well be the case for somebody who is now so in love with God, or whether he should stay in government, which similarly he initially saw as so unlikely, as people then didn't view politics as an appropriate career for a Bible-believing Christian. We should be so grateful then that it was John Newton, the same preacher that God had placed in the young Wilberforce's life in London, that now counseled him to stay exactly where God already had him and see what God might do with such a man in such a position. Doesn't this activity of God in Wilberforce's life remind us just how gracious and amazing God really is? For at the young age of nine and ten, he's hundreds of miles away from home. He's dealing with the death of his father and the dangerous illness of his mother. And by God's providential kindness, the young Wilberforce becomes the son that John Newton never had. And the godly Newton becomes the father that Wilberforce had just lost. Wilberforce never forgot the loving Christian influence that Newton had on him at that time. And when Wilbur was saved, Newton becomes the first one that Wilbur would seek guidance from. As someone born in the same city as Wilberforce, and exactly 200 years after him, it's been an incredible God-given privilege to have spent the last 17 years working on Wilbur's unpublished diaries. Two books have already been published from it. I'm now working with six other professors and Wilberforce experts in Britain on, on a mammoth task to bring to publication all the diaries, maybe about 12 or 15 volumes. I share that because I'm so grateful for all the support and the encouragement I've received from the administration and the trustees here at Midwestern on this, including a sabbatical this fall. And while Wilbur's manuscripts reveal a man who is so self-critical of his progress as a Christian, I've located two places where he did assess himself a little more objectively. It is of God's unmerited goodness, he says, that I am selected as the agent of usefulness. Later, he also reflected, if to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures and to be warmed with the desire of relieving their distresses is to be a fanatic, I am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. And it's when I think on statements such as that that I'm reminded of why I loved Wilberforce so much. And how appropriate is it as I share from this podium, fashioned after the podium that Spurgeon preached his God-blessed sermons from, to note that even though Spurgeon wasn't born until the year after Wilberforce died, 
Spurgeon will still preach at least seven sermons about what God had achieved through his fellow Brit. One example was a sermon that Spurgeon preached in 1883. It was on the 50th anniversary of Wilberforce's death, and Spurgeon preached these incredible words. A healthy church kills error and tears in pieces evil. Not so long ago, our nation tolerated slavery in our colonies. Philanthropists endeavored to destroy slavery, but when was it utterly abolished? It was when Wilberforce roused the church of God and when the church of God herself addressed herself to that conflict, then she tore the evil thing to pieces. I've been amused with what Wilberforce said, Spurgeon preached, the day after they passed the act of emancipation. He merrily said to a friend when it was all done, is there not something else we can abolish? That was said playfully, but it shows the spirit of the church of God. She lives in conflict and victory. Her mission is to destroy everything that is bad in the land. We dare not ignore Spurgeon's example together with Wilberforce's call to arms. At such a time as this, such a morally and spiritually dark time in both Britain and America's history. And the truth is that if anyone really was for the church and for the kingdom, then it was William Wilberforce. And if we're really serious about seeing a fresh move of God in our day, as they both did in theirs, then I believe that God, through them, would call each one of us to be as holy, to be as prayerful, and as much in love with Christ and the church as they both were. 25 years prior to Spurgeon's accolade, Abraham Lincoln made the very perceptive comment that whilst every schoolboy in America knew the name of Wilberforce, how many could remember even one single name of those who fought so vehemently against him. But what are those who knew him personally? You know, what did they think of Wilbur's character? The British poet laureate Robert Southey would often stay with Wilberforce, said, I never saw any other man who seemed to enjoy such a perpetual serenity and sunshine of spirit. In conversing with him, you feel assured that there is no guile in him, that if ever there was a good man and a happy man on earth, he was one. He frisks about as if every vein in his body were filled with quicksilver. James Stephen, another MP, also the incredible legal mind behind abolition, testified this. Being himself amused and interesting interested by everything. Whatever he said became amusing or interesting. His presence was as fatal to dullness as to immorality. His mirth was as irresistible as the first laughter of childhood. Another friend, MP, and the Baron, Charles Shaw, left a very intimate portrait. 
in person, Wilberforce was slightly deformed. He usually carried an inkstand in his pocket. He invariably wore black clothes, sometimes till they became quite dingy, for he ignored the outer man. He was quite unconscious of the notice which his personal appearance attracted. Few men have been so little influenced by the distracting passions of ambition, avarice, vanity, and resentment. J.I. Packer has left us a much more recent appraisal. William Wilberforce was a great man who impacted the Western world as few others have done. Blessed with brains, charm, influence, initiative, and much wealth, he put evangelism on Britain's map as a power for social change. To forget such men is foolish. I began working on Wilberforce's diaries in 2007, exactly 200 years after the slave trade was abolished. I think it's tragic that we've had to wait so long to have such a treasure available, especially to the church, because William Wilberforce was and is a major figure. An MP since the age of 21, the minimum age which you could stand for election, and he stays in government for 45 years, even holds the important seat of Yorkshire. He was best friends with William Pitt, the youngest prime minister that Britain has ever had. He met or corresponded with significant people. He corresponded with Thomas Jefferson. He met Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, Marie Antoinette, and Lafayette. He was the parliamentary spokesman for British abolitionism. And together with the Clapham sect, he surrounded himself with a circle of godly, powerful friends, supporters, and influencers. He becomes a profoundly influential Christian leader, a major figure in the evangelical revival, and one of the fathers of the Victorians. Even with just those few facts to ponder, it seems remarkable to me that the diaries have languished for two centuries, waiting for the likes of someone like me to work on them. But this morning, in February 2024, why devote one of our seminary's chapel times here in Kansas City, in the very heart of America, to a wealthy British politician who was born in the 18th century and died in the 19th century. I believe it's the same reason that Dr. Dusing shared with us about William Carey. Both men devoted their lives, their all, to God's call. And, and through their example, their commitment, and their faithfulness, God would still speak and challenge his people. Scripture tells us that God loves to use the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the strong and to bring to naught the things that are. And God does that in a way so that we cannot boast at all about anything that God might choose to do through us, except in Christ. And the truth was that if anyone was seen as weak and incredibly foolish by the world, 
It was William Wilberforce. He was a man who suffered from ulcerative colitis, terribly painful ulcers in his colon. He had this debilitating eye disease with his occasional blindness. He had a curvature of the spine, which necessitated the wearing of a secret metal frame under his clothing. And because of the terrible pain that he regularly experienced, he would suffer from an ever-increasing dependence on opium with all its unknown side effects at that time, including for him horrific hallucinations and terrible depressions. He also had to cope with the premature death of his only two daughters. Wilberforce will end up dying physically alone in a house that was not his because he'd sold the houses that he had owned to pay off the massive debts incurred by his firstborn son. I believe that William Wilberforce, together with the likes of Martin Luther and William Carey and so many other great men and women of God, would remind us all this morning that just because God might choose to use you in some incredible way, such as start a reformation, or be a pioneer foreign missionary, or help to abolish slavery, it doesn't mean that you're going to have an easy life. In fact, you're probably guaranteed that it may well mean the opposite. To work for the end of slavery was both very unpopular as well as increasingly dangerous. Wilberforce quickly became the target of several verbal tirades, actual physical assaults, two serious assassination attempts. Even the great British hero, Admiral Nelson, wrote that as long as he could speak and fight, he would resist, quote, the damnable doctrines of Wilberforce, believing him to be a traitor to England's national interest. After Wilberforce was physically attacked on the street by an angry sea captain, Wilbur would then travel with an armed bodyguard. It was also maliciously rumored that many of his friends were French spies. That was a terrible charge at the time as Britain was certain that it was going to be militarily invaded by Napoleon. Wilberforce's chief opponent in Parliament was a man called Benastri Tarleton, Bloody Tarleton, as the Americans knew him. Mel Gibson used Tarleton's life as the basis for a, a fictional evil colonel in his movie The Patriot. It was a movie I went to see at the cinema here at Kansas City. I sat in complete silence, in case anybody heard my British accent. <laughs> because of how bad the British Tartan was being portrayed to be. At the end of the movie, Tavington ends up skewered on an American flag, whereas in real life, Tartan becomes a member of the government like Wilberforce. He represents Liverpool, where the Beatles will later come from. But at the time, its wealth came mainly from its very active participation in the slave trade. And it's why Tarleton becomes Wilberforce's nemesis. If William Carey then was a plodder who never gave up, 
I'd have to say that Wilberforce was like the Energizer Bunny then, who never gave up as well. How Wilberforce physically did all that he did in pursuit of his great objects, I find it impossible to comprehend. He was an active creator, chairman, leader, member, or supporter of at least 69 very active societies outside of abolition. He campaigned relentlessly for the poor, for chimney sweeps, the uneducated, for prison reform, against unjust capital punishment, very, very minor crimes, as well as for children in mines and factories. He helped to found the Church Missionary Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society, and the London Missionary Society, which would later send Eric Liddell to China and David Livingstone to Africa. He personally sacrificially supported dozens of evangelical and humanitarian institutions, including fever hospitals, asylums, and infirmaries. He helped to found the School for the Blind in York, the National Gallery in London, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, all four of which are still flourishing. He financially supported the artist William Blake, Patrick Bronte through school, the widow of Charles Wesley by giving her a secret pension for many years. He financially supported dozens of preachers who couldn't support themselves. He also gave to projects to help improve people's lives, including Michael Flaherty's research into electromagnetism, Sir Humphrey Davies' research into the safety lamp, and Edward Jenner's research into smallpox vaccinations. Such a life of labor and real achievements would have been incredible enough for a single man. But Wilberforce was married with six children. He fell in love with Barbara Spooner, a committed evangelical like himself. He was 37, Barbara was 26. He proposed after just eight days. They were married within just a few weeks. And so began, in his own words, 35 years of undiluted happiness. Within a decade, they had four sons and two daughters and he was devoted to all seven of them. Guests at his house would be amazed as the children treated him as one of them, as he joined in their various games, marbles, blind man's buff, running races through the house. And all this in a day when fathers with the wealth and the position that he enjoyed rarely saw their children, farming them out to nannies and governesses and boarding schools, never mind having a relationship with them like Wilberforce did. After some of what we've shared this morning, I don't want anyone to come away with a very mistaken image of Wilberforce, though. He would be appalled if we believed him to be a perfect Christian superstar, as he really did see himself as so very, very imperfect. Quote, how should I be ashamed if others see me just as I really am? I often think that I'm one grand imposter. My heart is heavy. 
But as imperfect as he feels himself to be, his view of Christ as Savior then is all the greater. So he's absolutely driven to win people to his Savior. He used an evangelistic method he called launchers, notes and research on the people that he would meet as ways that he could launch the talk more toward Christ. And though many of his as yet unsaved friends knew this was Wilberforce's plan, it did not make him any the less attractive as a guest at meals and parties. As one contemporary wrote, when the little man came in late to a dinner party, bristling maybe with launchers, every face lighted up with pleasure at his entry. They knew what he was up to, but he really was such a winsome Christian. And it was his desire to win souls that also drove him to spend four years writing and praying for his only book, Real Christianity. He wrote it to explain his conversion. He wrote it to confront his own upper-class peers with the same gospel and the same savior that he'd responded to. And, and God blessed his book and in an incredible way. When the printer was approached initially, he was very dubious about printing a religious book, especially one written by a politician. But when he heard it would at least carry the name of Wilberforce, he agreed to a small print run of 500 copies. He needn't have worried. Every single one was sold out in days. His book became an incredible bestseller. It went to 13 editions in England and 26 here in America. I've come to love Wilberforce for so many reasons, but I love him for so much for how he fought for Baptist foreign missions and for the very real criticism that he would face for doing so. As he recorded, they, his Anglican friends, they think I cannot be loyal to the established church because I love Baptists. He said that by working with Baptists on mission, the same critics have accused him to being akin to treason. But Wilberforce couldn't be stopped. And he said this in Parliament. I do not know a finer instance of the moral sublime than that a poor cobbler working in his stall should conceive the idea of converting Hindus to Christianity. Yet such was William Carey. On several occasions, he also met with Andrew Fuller, the first secretary of the Baptist Mission Society. And the sheer number of letters that were written to and from Wilberforce by missionaries and those involved in the society revealed just how active and involved he was. I've discovered, for example, that when news reached Wilberforce of the terrible destructive fire at Carey's Serampur mission in India, Wilberforce immediately and personally sent a very generous gift with the promise of more if it were needed. He himself presented the Baptist mission's own petition in Parliament for them to be granted the legal right of mission and ministry in India. For that action, the Baptists in Britain referred to Wilberforce 
as not just being the advocate of humanity, but that he'd now become the friend of Christianity. Soon Wilberforce spoke again on behalf of Baptist missions. It was a speech in the government that many Christians regarded as the most distinguished effort ever made in Parliament. In the speech, he referred to William Carey and the other missionaries as, quote, these great and good men, and that they were, quote, entitled to our highest respect and admiration. He later stated that the Baptist Serampore mission was one of the chief glories of our country. I've not preached a sermon today, and yet Wilberforce himself becomes the sermon. His life as an imperfect, godly, Bible-loving, evangelistic, winsome agent of usefulness is the challenge, especially when today the fight is all the greater. With the present-day horrors of modern slavery, human trafficking, an abortion, the evil, the like of which Wilberforce could never even have imagined. Therefore, if we're ever tempted to give up pursuing your God-given call, or even worse, God forbid, to throw away everything that we have in Christ, you know, Wilbur's life and words should still challenge. Accustom yourself, he said, to look first to the dreadful consequences of failure. Then fix your eyes on the glorious prize which is before you. And when your strength begins to fail and your spirits are well nigh exhausted, let the animating view rekindle your resolution and call forth in renewed vigor the fainting energies of your soul. In another place, he added, let Christians boldly assert the cause of Christ in an age when so many who bear the name of Christian are ashamed of him. If that was true 200 years ago, how much more true is that today? At 4 a.m. on February 24th, 1807, just three days hence from now, England's House of Commons, by an overwhelming majority of 283 to 16, voted to abolish the slave trade. They rose to their feet, turned to their fellow legislator, William Wilberforce, and began to cheer, while Wilberforce bowed his head and wept. Granville, the prime minister, called the victory a measure which will diffuse happiness among millions now in existence and for which his memory will be blessed by millions yet unborn. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember William Wilberforce, not as a man who did great things, but as a man through whom you did great things. I pray that you'd help us to be challenged by his faithfulness and his tenacity to pursue both you and the vision that you yourself gave him. I pray that by the Holy Spirit, we'd seek to be as committed, as sacrificially generous, as winsome, and as holy. That wherever you might pl place each one of us here, 
we might see God touch lives in a very real way for his glory alone. And in his great name we pray. Amen.